Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven upon the face. During times of crisis and loss, we're left feeling powerless, confused, anxious, and afraid. What do we do with these emotions? Where does grief fit into our lives? In the final episode of this series on the problem of pain, we discuss the Bible's response to a world groaning in anguish, or as the Bible refers to it, lamentation. Lamentation is a way of expressing our sorrow through the discipline of prayer. We find people of faith in the Bible pouring out their hearts to God and and working through their pain and finding in the process a bridge to hope and conviction. This is Grant. And this is Jerome. You're listening to Reconciled, where we explore how Jesus finds us where we are, wherever we are, and leads us to where we need to be. So this is the last episode on the subject of the problem of pain, which I have to admit has already been pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie, Jerome, this one sounds like a downer. <laughs> yeah, it may be a bit of a downer, but it's necessary to talk about because as a society, we avoid sorrow at all costs. We, we don't really have a vehicle to express our sadness. There seems to be much more of an emphasis today on the psychological effects of positive thinking, the benefits of positive affirmation, and that has its place. But what do we do with our sadness? Because sadness also has its place. And you know, we mentioned last time that Christians often get categorized under the idea of whistling past the graveyard, right? Like they're always smiling through pain and that's what they're supposed to do. But I think what you highlighted was that the Bible makes room for emotions like pain and suffering. Right. I mean, we're supposed to be joyful people, but there's also a proper time to to be sad. I mean, some things happen in life that just demand an emotional response like sadness. I mean, it's totally appropriate to feel sad at a funeral. It would be inappropriate to be laughing or smiling. So there are objective realities we face in life, real situations that actually merit a genuine emotional response, whatever that response is. Uh, In the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity on earth. He goes on to say, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And in the context of the conversation we've been having over the last couple of weeks, it seems appropriate that sadness has a season. You know, in the context of pain and suffering that we've been discussing, you know, we've messed up the good world that God created, and now we're stuck living in it. Mm-hmm. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. So why is that? It, it seems contradictory. Yeah, all of those beatitudes are contradictory. Um, they, they sound like that. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. People, and they mourn when, if you think about it, when that which is good is taken away. When that which is good is, is, is lost or it's, it's out of our grasp. You know, when we see people suffering illness or, or disease or when a loved one dies, we see people trapped in poverty or uh, you know, suffering oppression or injustice. We naturally cry out in frustration and anger because deep down we know something's wrong there. But if everyone mourns, what's so special about Christians doing it? It's not like they suffer more than anybody else. Certainly not, and we don't want to give that impression. But when um, people of faith in the Bible, the Israelites in the Old Testament or Christians in the New Testament, when they mourn, uh, they're not crying out 
into a void of meaninglessness. They're not shaking their fist at the universe and just, you know, cursing fate that they've been dealt a bad hand. Their pain is directed to God, and it's the conviction of people of faith that God is actually listening to them. And so this goes back to some things we discussed before, that a Christian's lament should come from the conviction that God created the world good. You mentioned that a moment ago, Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth, everything was good. So when a Christian mourns over the violation of the goodness of that creation, Jesus is saying he's blessed because that's actually a cry of pain that God not only hears, but that he actually promises to answer. So yes, we're living in a broken world and we're partially to blame for that, but it's a world that God promises to heal. And according to the Bible, that healing will happen when Jesus comes back to set things right and renew his creation? Exactly. We've talked about that too. It's it's this anguish, but it's joined with hope in that renewed creation. So our anguish doesn't fall into complete despair because it has as its foundation the promise of God made real in the resurrection of Jesus. We talked about that. And there will come a time when the mourners will be comforted in the new heavens and the new earth. So that conviction of future restoration helps us process our grief in the present. So it gives us a framework through which we can interpret our pain. And like we talked about last time, we can see the light there at the end of the tunnel. So let's talk about how we can express pain in the present, kind of in the context of the future. So mm-hmm. what's the proper outlet according to the Bible for these emotions? You know, basically, how do we cope with pain and suffering in a healthy and constructive way? So the way the Bible puts it, at least the short answer, is lamentation. So lamentation, like what you do at a funeral, mourning the dead? Exactly. So lamentation is both something that you do, it's a discipline or it's an action, and it's also a genre of literature in the Bible. Quite a bit of the Bible is actually uh, lamentation. It's a way of praying that acknowledges our pain and is also calling upon God to do something about it. So it's a way of bringing our emotions and our intellect together so that we can process how we feel through what we know, because both of those are important. So we see lamentation all over the Bible in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, especially in the book of uh, Psalms. Psalms uh, is really a collection of 150 prayer slash songs to God, and they express all sorts of feelings. But the Psalms of lament express feelings of abandonment, feelings of loss and fear and pain, the whole range of human emotions, really. So how does that look and sound to actually express pain through prayer like that? Well, it probably sounds a lot like uh, how you think it would sound. It's being absolutely transparent, just being real about how you feel. Uh, voicing your frustration, um, telling God that you're outraged or that you're confused, whatever you're feeling. But the point of lament is that you're doing that to God. You're directing those words to God. A couple of examples here. If you um, read in the Psalms, you'll see Psalm 6, for instance, where David is saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. My bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. That's lament language. Or Psalm 10, 
Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 13, how long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long is my enemy going to triumph over me? Or the haunting words of Psalm 22, when David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So they're all pouring out their pain in these raw, unfiltered prayers to God. But it sounds like they're complaining and at times even blaming God for their pain. And I thought that's what we weren't supposed to do. Yeah, it does sound a bit like complaining, doesn't it? Um, And there might be some complaining in there, certainly. But it's not uh, just complaining. It's not merely complaining. Like when we complain, it often comes from a place of selfishness or short-sightedness or just impatience. Um, To give an example in the Bible, when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, uh, he was leading them to the promised land, and it doesn't take uh, very long for them to get out into the desert, and they start grumbling against God. And they actually, in their complaining to God, they were assuming the very worst about God. In fact, at one point, they even accused God of bringing them out there in the desert to die. So here, you know, God had rescued them. He provided food for them. He's guiding them to this beautiful place that he was going to give them as a gift. And they're painting him like he's a villain. So their their complaints were a way of really testing God and calling his character into question. But the laments in the Psalms are different. Yes, they're raw. Yes, they, they as we often speak, you know, when we're in deep pain ourselves, um, but they're actually appealing to God's goodness. They're appealing to God's love, his promises. They're affirming his character. So in those examples we gave before, we talked about Psalm 6. Well, David goes on to say, he says, Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me. Why? Because of your unfailing love. Or Psalm 25 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. So he's asking God to do something he promised to do. So the fundamental difference between what Israel is doing is that while they're maligning and they're doubting God's character, the Psalms that you're highlighting are putting trust in the fact that he has the character in which they believe. Yeah, they're appealing to God based upon his His good nature, his good character. And that's why uh, so many of these Psalms of lament, they begin in darkness, but they come out in the light by the end. Like Psalm 22, it shifts from feelings of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to deliverance. Uh, He says, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. Or Psalm 13, it moves from questioning when God was going to do something about his situation. How long, how long, O Lord, are you going to hide your face from me forever? And it ends in this place of praise, of of resolution. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. So as they're working through their suffering, they're reminding themselves of what they know to be true about God because appearances, circumstances, and how we feel in the midst of those circumstances, that can be really deceptive. So that's why most of these psalms usually end with some kind of fresh assurance of God's salvation. 
It's interesting because I can't help but notice that what they're not doing is trying to explain their trouble. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this in the past, which is that we might not always know the reason for our trouble. No, we don't. And the prayers, like you said, they don't always indicate that they know why they're suffering. Uh, and the suffering doesn't magically go away by the end of the prayers either. But this avenue of lament holding how we feel and our circumstances together with what we know about God, it it provides them uh, certainty and assurance through their trouble. So using prayer in this way lets it act like a bridge to hope or a light that we can follow to help us get through the dark times? They can. However, (laughs) there are a few songs, there's only two really, that actually they go the other way. You mean they start out in the light and end in the darkness? Yes, yes. So like Psalm 89, it it starts out by celebrating God's goodness and his promises, but then it just switches right in the middle and it's all gone horribly wrong. But Psalm 89 actually ends on a hopeful note, so we'll scratch that one off the list. But the one before that, Psalm 88 starts in misery and it ends in darkness. Literally, the last word in the Hebrew text is darkness. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or Psalm 39, at the very end, uh, it says, Look away from me, speaking to God, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. But that doesn't sound like a thing that a faithful person should be saying or even thinking. So how do we make sense of these? Yeah, it it is uncomfortable for us to read things like this. But this is teaching us something about lament here. Lament doesn't just act as an outlet for our frustration or our loneliness or whatever. And it's more, you call it a bridge to hope, it's true, but it's actually more than that. Lament actually helps us understand another great mystery. And that's that God also laments. That he cries out in pain just like we do. So when we are lamenting over the brokenness of this world, what we're actually doing is participating with our God. That's interesting because that definitely goes against that classical concept of God as above all the petty concerns of humans. You know, typically it's the idea that he's all powerful, he's all knowing, so he's just going to calmly sit up in heaven unaffected by human trouble. Yeah, I mean, that image of God is so foreign to the picture we have uh, in the Bible For instance, God was grieved to his heart when he looked down from heaven and saw that the, you know, humanity had just turned their back on each other and on him in the days of Noah. They were violent. They were wicked. Every thought and intention of his heart was only evil continually. God was devastated when his own bride, you know, the people of Israel, Uh, betrayed him. They went and worshiped other gods. And then, of course, there's Jesus. We talked about this last episode, God as a human. And what is he doing at the tomb of his friend Lazarus? He's crying. He's weeping there. So as we cry out to God in pain, God laments with us. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. Um, He speaks of, in Romans chapter 8, he speaks of all of creation groaning together in the pains of childbirth, and how Christians also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies and the resurrection. But he goes on to say that God's spirit within every Christian is groaning and and, and moaning with these sounds that are too deep for words. So you have 
the grief of the Father, you have the tears of the Son, you have the anguish of the Spirit, all coming together in Christians as they voice their pain to him. You know, groanings too deep for words, Paul calls it. A, a pain that's so unbearable that it can only come out in these inarticulate moans and sighings. So God is in such pain, the eloquent speaking God is in such pain that it leaves him speechless. And so if God is suffering in that space with us, the Christian's job is never to try to just explain what's happening and why, but instead it's just to participate in that. It is to give ourselves over to that lament. Yes, it's to take our grief in the one hand and then God's word in the other, what we know about God, and just give voice to the pain of the world. And God is listening. And God is is participating in that with us. Our job as Christians is to stand in that dangerous gap between heaven and earth and weep with those who weep. It's to bring then God's healing love to bear upon this wounded world in that way. And this is all a fascinating concept, but I do want to take a step back because how does a Christian's lament practically heal the world? Well, uh, we quoted Romans 8 earlier. So remember, these are not cries of utter despair. You know, we can cry out to God in hope because our pain actually has a purpose. It's moving towards a goal. Paul uh, classified that pain as the pains of childbirth. He gives us that image there. So it's through our pain or at least our expression of that pain that God's new world is coming into birth? Yes, and if, if, if while we're lamenting and we're praying, we're trusting in God to make things right. It's, it's like the psalmist, you know, we should be appealing to God based upon his character, his, his steadfast love, his faithful love, his promises that he's made. And we can be certain of that faithful love because it was brought to us and it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus on the cross and through the tomb. And so Jesus actually took up one of those psalms of lament while he was dying on the cross. He even said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this prayer was like the pinnacle of all laments because he was truly suffering innocently. And the Bible says that God answered that cry when he raised him from the dead on the third day. Exactly. Because his lament was answered, that means our lament will be answered too. So before you ask, you know, what practical effects does lament have to actually heal the world? Well, now, because of Jesus, when Christians cry out through that shared pain with God and lamentation, it's like they're getting in touch with the nerve center of this broken world. Then you start to recognize, hey, you know, I'm not the only one suffering here. There are other people who are suffering too. And you slowly the more you do this, become more sensitive to the pain of the people around you. And that new creation that's coming, it actually comes to birth within you in small and often hidden ways. All of a sudden, when you start thinking that you're not the center of the universe, but there's a whole world of hurting people out there, these doors of opportunity start to open up that we were blind to before because we were consumed with our own lives and our own needs and our own pain. We start to see the needs of others. And because we're moved by their pain, we value those people. We reach out to those people. But how do we reach out in a meaningful way? Well, every act of 
kindness and compassion, mercy, wisdom, generosity, whatever, sacrifice, they all act as these advanced signposts to the future. It's a little piece of new creation, a little piece of God's future, but here it is happening right here in the present. So the narrative of the Bible, which has Jesus at its center, is not simply pointing to a trivial happy ending when all of our suffering, it won't matter anymore because it all works out in the end. It's pointing to a new beginning when death is swallowed up by life, when joy and salvation will be understood, but they'll only be understood through our suffering. In that great chapter in Romans 8, Paul the Apostle says, if Christians suffer with Jesus, they will also be glorified with Jesus. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and Paul knew a thing or two about suffering, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Lament is not only a literary genre of scripture, but also an indelible category of the human existence in this compromised world. We all bewail the injustices, sufferings, and terrors of life, but not every worldview makes room for the full expression of human sorrow. There is no hope in protest without promise. In the Bible, Jesus promises that those who mourn will be comforted, that he is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He promises a day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new, and that newness begins in Jesus. Thanks for listening to our short series on the problem of pain. Jerome and I will be back soon with new content, but in the meantime, if you liked what you've been listening to, please go and write a review and subscribe. Also, if you ever have questions that you'd like to have answered about the Bible, or if another topic that you'd want to hear us explore, please feel free to reach out. You can email us at contact at reconciledpodcast.com. And until next time, thanks. Thanks.